Hey friends, welcome to Garden Church Podcast. This is a series called Jesus People. We are looking at who Jesus is and how we become more like him. Jesus People are God's strategy for transforming the world. We hope you enjoy this podcast. For more information, go to garden.church. Let's go! Jesus People. This is a, a visionary discipleship series. We want you to look like Jesus. I want you to take the ideas, the theology, the ministry, the mindset of Christ. I want you to embody that, believe that, live that out. I want you to take his habits and practices and lifestyle um, and adopt it into your life and learn the unforced rhythms of grace. We want you to look at Christ and look at God in the scriptures and embody the attributes of God. So each week is a different theme. This is the week, uh, week three. So we're looking at attributes and characteristics of God. Now, so I'm excited for this. I have a title for the sermon, but before I give you the title, I have to confess, okay? I have some values that I live by. I, I think we all do, whether we name them or not. I have values for leadership. I have values for preaching. I learned how to preach through Pastor Bill and through, some, um, through Mike Erie at Rock Harbor and, various, and Don Williams and various teachers that taught me how to preach the word of God. And I've adopted values. One of the values, number one, for everyone we bring to this stage to preach at Garden, they have to live the value, preach the value, the authority of scripture. We will preach, whether it's topical or exegetical, verse by verse, it will be what the scripture says. I don't wanna just give you ideas. I want to teach the scripture. That will always be value one. Number two, I want to name something. Some of you are like, man, I really like Pastor Bill or I really like other teachers. And, and the truth is, I'm a preacher. And there's a difference between preaching and teaching. And Bill will step into preaching, but he's primarily a gifted teacher. And teaching is needed in the church. We need different gifts with different uh, skill set and different ideas to come. We have so many guest preachers come in and teachers. I preach for transformation. Like what, there's an urgency. Do you notice that I preach with an urgency? You're like, gosh, how can you be so passionate every Sunday? Because there is an urgency inside of my soul for you to understand this is not about information. This is about transformation. This is not about me trying to give you some ideas I read, a transfer of knowledge. This is about you becoming the person God intended you to be from the beginning of the world. That's inside of me. So I can't help it. I can't help myself. The third thing is incarnational preaching. And this is the tricky one. And this is what I'm here to confess. Incarnation means, for me, it means to embody the word. I always ask people, what's the scripture doing in you? Get the text you're teaching on, the ideas you're teaching on into your soul. Let it disrupt your habits. Let it do something in the week so that you're at like Knott's Berry Farm on, on a Saturday with your, your family and the word of God is just messing you up. That's very specific. Like it might have been me yesterday. <laughs> Standing in lines, waiting. The reason I'm here to confess is some sermons I have mastered the idea. Like I know the kingdom of God. I've preached on the kingdom so much. I have practiced silence and solitude for so long since I was, for 20 years. I've adopted that practice and habit. I love it. Today's not one of those sermons. What do I mean? This is a sermon that I wrestle with that I struggle with. And this isn't a, okay, don't believe what I said. This is me letting you into the inner life where before I came here today, my wife was like, I don't really like your energy this morning. <laughs> the title of my sermon is A Strategy for Patience. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, <laughs> Lord Jesus, have mercy. Have mercy on me as I preach with conviction based on my own shortcomings and even sin, knowing that I've been formed in a culture of hurry. And I actually really like the effects of feeling accomplished, that actually the enemy is at work. And I pray in the name of Jesus for revelation that's not about shame, but about conviction for the life you desire most in us. 
So woo us to yourself today in Jesus' name. Amen. Grab a Bible, 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Here's what we're going to do. We're gonna, I'm going to make the case in Scripture. Then I'm going to show you why this is so important based on this cultural moment. I'm going to talk about the invitation that Jesus has for us to embody his lifestyle, his habits. And then I'm going to land with like six points on how to practice a strategy to develop patience. Are you with me? All right, 40 minutes, here we go. Chapter one, uh, I'm sorry, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse four. You've probably read this before. It's the love chapter. I'm I'm gonna read it and then I'm gonna give you context and then I'm gonna share my frustrations with you. 1 Corinthians chapter four, love is patient. It's the first thing. Come on, love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It's not easily angered. It keeps no records of wrong. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. How many of you had this read at your wedding? Just show of hands to those of us that had it run. How many of you know that it's out of context? Just kidding, no. <laughs> first Corinthians is written by a guy named Paul. It's the second letter. We don't have the first. We know that he wrote another letter. We don't have, so there were three letters to Corinth. But in this letter, he's correcting spiritual issues in the church. There's all sorts of dynamic, primarily the overemphasis of tongues in the spiritual practice that they came to see as an enlightened spiritual thing. He's correcting all this. In the midst of correcting this issue, he has this chapter that breaks up the, the correction of spiritual issues. And it's chapter 13, and it's about love. Now, what you have to understand is this description is lo- of love exists in the arena of relationships, the coliseum, if you will, of relationships, where the battle is met with flesh and blood. This chapter is about conflict. This is not some poetry or sonnet to really like put on your wall as a reminder of like Shakespearean love, you know, but soft with light through yonder window breaks. It is the east and Julia is this. That's not what he's doing. He is saying this has to be embodied when there's massive disagreement and conflict. And the first thing that love produces in a relationship is patience. Patience. Long suffering. A slowing down of space and time. Love is patient. Now in John... We have in 1 John chapter 4, if you would go there, I want to show you a verse. This is a different epistle written by the Apostle John. It's called the Love Epistle. He has all sorts of beautiful writings about love, but he says in just a quick one, 1 John chapter 4, verse 8, he says, whoever does not love does not know God. Now pause there. Paul's writing about conflict in relationships describes what love looks like in relationships when there's skin in the game. You can't possibly love without other people involved. And no loving relationship will ever be perfect or without conflict. You will have to have the characteristics that are embodied, which involves patience and kindness and self-control and all these other things that go along with it. And in this passage, he says, if you don't do this in your relationships, you don't even know God. Because why? God is love. So if God is love and love is patient, then God is patient. Would you agree? Like, Darren, you're so smart. (laughs) There is a teacher inside of you. (laughs) Just kidding. Old Testament, when describing what Yahweh, the creator of the universe, is like, Moses gives us this glimpse, which is used over and over again to describe God. Um, In Exodus 34, verse 6, excuse me, the, the passage says, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God. So the first word is compassionate. I love this word. Because in many ways, this is the ethic of the entirety of Scripture, compassion. It's not like some static idea. It's love in the Old Testament. It's absolutely the definition of love, but it's defined by its character and and, uh, activity towards the other. The word in Hebrew is where we could literally be translated, and this isn't literal, this is a paraphrase, womb-ish, womb-ish. Because 
definition, it's compassion is this feeling you get in your inner being. Your, the insides are just moving inside to do something for the person, to act towards them empathetically, and it requires you to act um, in love. Uh, it's what God is like. He is, he is wombish. It's like a mother towards an unborn child in her womb. The feeling she has is what God is towards us. Isn't that beautiful? Gracious. And then it says, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. But there it is. When, when describing what God is like in the Old Testament over and over again is this idea that God is slow to anger. Slow to anger. It goes on and I'm gonna, for the sake of time, I'm not in a hurry right now, but for the sake of time, we see that God is slow to anger, that God is love, and love is patient. God is clearly moving at a different pace than we are. Would you agree? Just live the Christian life for a little bit, and you'll see God works on a different timeline. A lot of times it's frustrating. Would you agree? A lot of times you could say, why are you being so patient? <laughs> right? Like, or I would say you're, you're really not, you're not moving at the pace I would prefer. I have a lot to get done. I would appreciate these prayers taking a little less time than they have been taking. I would appreciate this person operating at a certain speed that enables me to accomplish the things that I desire, mainly my kids. But then there's this passage in Galatians. So we see that, that when God, God is love, describing God, he's patient. But then Paul, in another passage uh, of Scripture in Galatians, which in this context, he's correcting a different issue. They're preaching the false gospel. So that's a whole other story. But he, he regularly, in the, the whole book of written to the church in Galatia, he's contrasting um, like a form of Pharisaism, like where they're, 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 they're going back to the law versus grace. And then he contrasts the acts of the flesh, your sinful nature, your sinful desires, the things that we know really well, you know, the anger and discord, the anxiety, the, the hate, the pride, the lust, God bless you. Um, and then he contrasts that to what he'll call the fruit of the spirit. And here's what it says in Galatians chapter five. It says, the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, which is the, also the translated patience, long suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. So now let me just say contextually, you can't say, Holy Spirit, empower the gift of patience because it's not a gift. It's not like a matrix download and now you can f fly the helicopter in the moment you need it. That, am I dating myself, the matrix? I don't have any. It's still, it's timeless. So there you go. Um, it's, it's a fruit. So the gifts of the Spirit are given through the power of the Holy Spirit based on the God's sovereign desire and will. You can be given a gift of teaching can be given a gift of prophecy or a word of knowledge or healing or the gift of tongues, a gift of interpretation, a gift of wisdom. There's all sorts of gifts of leadership in the, in the book of Romans, in Corinth, and sorry, in the book of Corinthians. But there's also fruit and fruit are characteristics and attributes that are only experienced when you spend lots of time with God in the power of God through his Holy Spirit. Have you ever tried to speed up growth process? Like that, how many of you were given like a seed and you had to watch it grow? Okay, when you're growing up, in, how many of you watered it and you didn't see anything and then you like dug it up to see what it looks like? Anyone know what I'm talking about? Yeah, okay. Am I the only one? I'm like, that's literally my life since I was in second grade. I was doing that. I'm like, I just want to see it grow. Question I have for you is what kind of fruit is your life bearing? What kind of fruit is your life bearing? So what happened to me yesterday is I was in line, thinking it, you know, it just happens. I start thinking about my sermon, which I had previously written during the week. And I started asking the question for whatever reason in my head, why patient? Like, why is patience? Why, when Exodus, when Moses is talking about what Yahweh, the creator, you're compassionate, you are loving, you're gracious. Why does he say slow to anger? 
Why does it say patience or long suffering? Why is when you spend lots of time with Jesus and the Spirit of God works in your soul to become more like Him? Why is one of those characteristics patience? That's very inconvenient for all the things I have to get done. Why is patience so important to healthy relationships? That if you're gonna have loving relationships, if I'm gonna love my wife the way Jesus intends me, why do I have to learn to express that love through a disposition of patient? It's frustrating. But then I started thinking in line at Knott's Berry Farm. I started thinking, well, what does impatience do to my relationships? And And then I realized what impatience does. You see, I'm a recovering, impatient person. Not even a day sober. Um, I'm in a hurry. And I'll, I'll talk about the culture of hurry we live in and the challenges that we face because of it. But impatience is me often forcing my desires and wills on the outcome of life based on what I have determined as important. So when I'm impatient, what tends to happen is a lot of other problems come into my relationships. My impatience causes me to speak in a way that's hurried or rushed, where I'll say things that with, if I was sober-minded, I might not say in the argument. You don't know what I'm talking about? I might send the email with a tone that I didn't intend because I'm, I'm living in the culture of hurry. So I just, I have so much to get done. And this email is an inconvenience to what I have to get done, even though it's what my calling in life requires. So I can do it in a slow pace, but I choose to do it fast because I've been accommodating to the pace of culture. So I, I send mistakes. I, I, I miss things. I lose my temper because when I'm trying to get things done based on my timing, I rush the other person's speed and they might make mistakes. So what patience does, patience, gosh, I can't, my wife's right here, so it's really hard to look over here. (laughs) She's like, preach it. (laughs) Patience creates space for the other person to be fully themselves. So now, (laughs) I'm not forcing my will on my wife or my kids I'm honoring them as a full person who has a will, desires, a pace at which they live that is true to who they really are. Patience enables people to be fully themselves. So when you think of God being patient with you versus impatient, right? Imagine if God was impatient with you. Come on, Darren. Let's go. You messed up again? You got to get on track. Imagine if that was the voice of a tender, loving dad. If God is love, then absolutely he creates space and empowers space for you to go at your pace. To slow down so you can be fully yourself in him. God is never in a hurry. And if the meaning of life is relationships, then patience enables healthy relationships because you need patience for a healthy relationship. You can't force, otherwise you're not in a good relationship, right? Otherwise you're struggling with someone who's forcing and manipulating their life and reality upon you, which is what I do to my family all the time. Does this make sense? These are all reflections from Knott's Berry Farm. (laughs) Deep thoughts with Jack Handy. No, um, dating myself again. Think about the pace that's required for a new baby and a new mom or dad. Think about the pace of a body after it gives birth. Like you can't even go fast if you just give birth. The, 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 the healing process of a woman's body after she gives birth forces her to go at a slower pace. 
the cycles, the, um, the, the needs of a newborn are absolutely overwhelming. Imagine if a newborn, uh, newborn baby was born at the, the, the pace of a, a seven-year-old or a teenager. All of the intimacy that's formed in the slow season of breastfeeding, of naps, of tender diaper changes, of crying late at night, of sickness, of that's required in that space of intimacy. Are you with me? Patience. It's a virtue, even if I don't like it. And it requires a slowing down. Now, let's just look at all of the, uh, I, I want to show you something. So Paul, when he confronts the acts of the flesh, what I would like to say is the spirit of God becomes an environment or atmosphere that we grow in. So we replace culture as our primary influence, an environment for experiencing growth or fruit with the spirit of God becoming that environment, okay? This is part of our process of transformation. So the question I have is what kind of fruit are you bearing in your life? Are you experiencing, you can put that slide up, fruit of the spirit or fruit of the world? So take a quick assessment. Ask yourself, bless you again, over the last five years, let's say you've been with Jesus for a year, we'll say 11 months. Have you grown in love or apathy and indifference? Are you growing in joy? Are you growing in peace? Or are you growing in anxiety and discord? If you stay influenced by the culture around you, the culture is bending you in its image and the image is impatience, selfishness, pride, dishonesty. The culture is wanting you to be inconsistent. Live with a, a, if you say yes, it doesn't really matter. You're not faithful to your word. Why would you have to be faithful to your word in our culture? Do what's best for you. Your heart is the center of the universe. Your desires are king. Your appetite is God. Ah, this is Sparta. No, um, gentleness, self-control. What are you growing in? Culture has a, 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 is a, a powerful formation machine. It's, it's, it's shaping you to embody the fruit of its God, Satan. And Satan wants you to be dishonest and selfish, impatient and hurried. Now, I, this might sound crazy, and I want you to hear me. But in the same way that silence and solitude or creating alone time with God becomes the container for life in the Spirit, recognizing hurriness and busyness as the cultural mechanism the enemy uses to keep you from God is key for life in Jesus. Let me explain this to you. We live in a culture of hurry. There is a new term that psychologists have uh, coined for a actual illness or sim uh, it's called hurry sickness and the definition I don't know if it's on the screen I don't think it is the definition is a behavior patterned a behavior pattern characterized by a continual rushing and anxiousness the vibe you put off here are 10 signs that you might have hurry sickness or might be moving too fast through life and I want you to count, count them and tally them up at the end we're going to do a show of hands how many of us are 10 out of 10? Irritability, hypersensitivity, restlessness, which means that when you try to rest, you actually can't. Your mind is going and you can't calm down. Emotion, uh, compulsive overworking, emotional numbness, escapist behaviors, disconnected from your identity and your calling. You're not able to attend to human needs. The, what does that mean? That means that you choose to be a victim of your schedule and because you're living in the culture of hurry and accomplishment that you don't actually slow down to eat well, to work out, to tend to the needs that you have as a human soul. Hoarding energy. Hoarding energy, I'm, I'm an expert at this. It's terrible. You, you literally, because your mindset is time scarcity, you don't have enough time to accomplish the things that are required of you, that you, you 
secure energy in different moments because you don't know if you need it for later moments. So you give everything here, but you didn't have enough energy for your kids and now you, you've tanked. And so you're hoarding energy in different moments. And the last one is a slippage in our spiritual practices. Okay, uh, anyone want to confess 10 out of 10? Anyone? Okay, seven out of 10. Let's just keep our hands up. Seven out of 10. Keep your hand up. All right, okay. You can put it down. That's good. Five out of 10. Five out of 10. Okay, there's more of us. Okay, raise your hand if you have four or less. All right, those are the, the spirit of uh, Jesus. The testimony of prophecy is the spirit of Jesus. Can you just prophesy over us? <laughs> testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Just prophesy. Some of us have some serious issues. I want to show you how serious this is, though. Okay, just stay with me for a moment because there's some research done, right? Um, Michael Zigarelli, he's from Charleston University School of Business. He did a survey of 20,000 Christians in the United States and he identified busyness as the major distraction from God. Now stay with me. He says, it may be the case that Christians are assimilating a culture of, number one, assimilating a culture of busyness. In other words, they're matching culture's hurry busyness into their lives. Which leads to number two, becoming more marginalized and God becoming more marginalized in their life. So because we just, God bless you, um, get someone, uh, some uh, NyQuil over here or DayQuil, I got you. Um, it may be that uh, God's becoming more marginalized in your life because you're, you're matching the pace of culture which leads to a deteriorating relationship with God, which leads to number four, Christians becoming, becoming even more vulnerable to adopting secular assumptions about how to live. So you adopt the assumption that hurry's okay. You take on the hurried pace. Where does this come in, brothers and sisters? FOMO, single people, you don't want to miss out on what everyone else is doing. So you show up to all the things at night and you're exhausted. I talked about silence and solitude on, on Sunday. How many of you saw your silence and solitude contended for? You didn't get it this week because you were too tired. You stayed up too late. You missed it. It happens. But also happens because we don't make wise decisions. It's not, I saw this Christian meme. It's not spiritual attack. It's you have been, you've made dumb decisions in your life. <laughs> Something like that. Put it up on the screen. But we, we adopt, okay, so maybe it's FOMO. Maybe it's you're in a stage of life that requires a lot of extra time, but you haven't renegotiated your schedule yet. So you're, you, have a not, you have a full-time job and you're taking classes at night, but you're still committing to all the extracurriculars. You got to decide your values. Are you with me? Families, sports. This probably hits harder in the first service. There's a lot more kids in the first I don't want to attack the idol that is youth sports, but I might attack it just a little bit because no idol is safe when Jesus is around. But there is a mindset in the American family that's like, and, and, and in Southern California, exponentially so, where, yeah, we want our kids to play soccer and baseball, and if they want to compete at, you know, a nine-year-old level, they need to go to the, the, the t private tutors for SATs already, and they have to get private coaches for all the different things. It's not just a batting coach, it's a pitching coach. And they, they have to join the, the league, but then they have to join the club. So now your Tuesdays, your Wednesdays, and your Thursday nights are taken by sports and your all-day Saturdays and the occasional tournaments that are Saturdays and Sundays. Please forgive me, I know I'm a pastor, but this is a big deal for families. It's an, I, I do think it's an idol. Look, there's nothing wrong with playing kids sports. I'm for it, be a part of team sports. But do your values as a follower of Jesus shape your family systems more so than the cultural assumption of hurry and busy? I talk to so many families. They don't read scripture together. They don't have family meals at the table together because they're so hurried out the door to get to school. They're at school all day. They come back and then they go to practice afterwards. Then they do homework and then they go to sleep exhausted and weekends is filled 
with other things? When are you forming your kids into the image of Christ as a mom and dad? Okay, I'm gonna pause right there. There we go. So anyways, the point is we adopt secular culture and as a result, we conform to a culture of busyness, hurry and overload and the cycle continues. Carl Jung said, hurry isn't of the devil. It is the devil. One professor, David Meyer, a leading multitasking scholar, apparently you can be a scholar of multitasking. It doesn't exist. There's no such thing as multitasking. Continuous partial attention. He says that the issue of multitasking and hurry and the damage it has on society is similar to the glory days of the tobacco industry. He says, and I quote, it's not, people aren't aware what's happening to their mental process in the same way that people years ago couldn't look into their lungs and see the residual deposits of tobacco. And then this is from a famous Andrew Sullivan article that came out. I think it was uh, New York Times or Post or, or The Atlantic, sorry. He said, modernity slowly weakens spirituality by design and accident. In favor of commerce, it downplayed silence and mere being in favor of noise and constant action. The reason we live in a culture increasingly without faith is not because science has somehow disproved the unprovable, but because the white noise of secularism has removed the very stillness in which it might endure or be reborn. If churches came to understand that the greatest threat to faith today is not hedonism, but distraction, perhaps they might begin to appeal anew to a frazzled digital generation. How many of you are recognizing you're struggling? It's not just me that needs to repent and confess the hurry and impatience but perhaps we are part of a system designed to keep us on the treadmill of busyness, distraction, and hurry. That perhaps the devil's greatest weapon is not our pride and our sin, but perhaps simply walking through life like this. Maybe perhaps this is a sign of being captured, imprisoned, and our inability to remain present to the people around us and patient in circumstances is the direct result of an assault from the kingdom of darkness. Now the problem is we think we can change because you had one sermon and an idea that challenges your previous ideas. That's not gonna change you. The problem is we think if I just go to the event and get zapped by the Holy Spirit, then I'm going to be transformed, you know? Look, I'm all for getting zapped by the Spirit. I believe in that. We pray for every Sunday. And that happens. It happens. God can do years of therapy work in a moment in prayer. How many of you have experienced that? Yes and amen. And the primary arena for transformation is your daily life. How do you learn patience as a new parent? Holy Spirit, come, give me patience. When you have a child who wakes you up in the middle of the night. How many of you know that patience, when you ask for it or you want to become more like Jesus, comes in all sorts of undesirable out, uh, experiences in reality? Like the 405 is literally shut down on your way to the LAX or PCH, trying to get to... Pre, uh, uh, Tuesday morning prayer and literally there's an overturned semi-truck. Oh, what's the devil trying to do to me? I'm going to knock down this closed door, climb over PCH, park my car, and run to the prayer gathering. Or perhaps it becomes the gymnasium for your Christ-likeness where all of a sudden it's the crying baby, it's the disrespectful nine-year-old, it's the yelling in, the, in Target or whatever store you're at, Walmart, whatever, I don't know, CVS. 
I'm saying things, I'm like, oh gosh, I'm gonna trigger people politically. Like every, everything I say, boys rule, girls drool. Oh no! <laughs> Men need to be masking. Oh no! <laughs> Am I right? So let me say what I said again. Let's say you're shopping at Target and your toddler's screaming on the floor. That's where you learn patience. So patience is this thing that's grown in you as a choice to engage in life in a way that challenges the system, okay? There's a flawed system. And I love what Eugene Peterson says. He says, and I'm gonna paraphrase, he says, the Jesus way wedded to the Jesus truth brings about the Jesus life. I'm not going to read the rest of it. But the idea is, oftentimes we think if we just know the Jesus truth and then we live our way of life however we want. What do I mean? You pray the prayer, Jesus, your Lord and Savior, come into my life so that I'd be saved. You're Lord of the prayer, but you're not Lord of my nine to five. You're not Lord of my Friday and Saturday nights. That's for sure. You're not Lord of my physical body. My appetite is Lord. My desire for sexual pleasure is Lord. And I will accommodate to that Lord versus what you say about holiness and purity and stewarding my body as a temple. So what Eugene Peterson says is in the church, we've created a system where it's like, just believe the right stuff, vote the right way, say the right truth, but then live the way you want to. That system has produced an impatient culture in the church. In other words, if you want the life that Jesus promises, abundant and eternal life here and now. You have to adopt the lifestyle of Jesus in the power of the Holy Spirit. You have to accept Jesus as Lord of your life and God bless you, and the life and the life style as the way for the life. This is the thing we need to adopt. So I want you to think for a moment, if you're gonna adopt the lifestyle of Jesus, what does Jesus look like in your mind? Just close your eyes, just think about him. Use your imagination, what's he like? And then like, just for a moment, way of exercise, what's one word to describe him? Based on your knowledge and experience of Jesus. One of my favorite heroes, of the faith is a guy named Dallas Willard, right? Dallas, a theologian, the grandfather of the modern spiritual formation movement. Several books that define my life I read from him. Just so you know, Garden Church was one of the last churches to host him as a preacher and teacher. How cool is that? You weren't there for that. Most of us weren't there, but it was amazing. But he was asked by a student, what's one word that you would use to describe Jesus? And his response was, Relaxed. Now, what does that do to your view of God? Of all the words you chose, and my spiritual hero of the faith chose the word relaxed. Now, can I say something about Dallas? Because I had the privilege of having a meal with him and watching him for a few days. That man was incredibly slow. He literally walked slow, dished up his food that only had about 45 minutes between sessions, very slow, answered questions in a way that made you wonder if he heard you because there was so much time in between the end of your sentence and the beginning of his. And sometimes his response was, that was a great question. I don't have an answer for that. The way he lived in the two days we had impacted me. Also, I never saw anyone, um, I've never seen anyone intimidate Pastor Bill like Dallas Willard. He sat, if you were there, he sat like a child at the foot of his rabbi. Now, one of the, uh, one of the students in, 
disciples of Dallas Willard, who's a famous pastor, John Ortberg, he took over a teaching role at, I think it was Willow Creek, which was at the time the largest church in the United States. And he took on all these new responsibilities and he was mentored by Dallas and he called Dallas up from Chicago and was like, hey, Dallas, like, I'm doing all these things. Here's all my responsibilities. 30,000 plus people at our church. I'm speaking to all these things midweek. What do I do to ensure my spiritual life is, you know, empowered for leadership or something like that? And Dallas's slow pause said, you must eliminate Ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. His response to what he needed to do to lead in this new role and season was to ruthlessly eliminate hurry. Where we get the book, John Mark wrote, Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. Now, what's interesting is right after that, John Orberg wrote it down and he said, "Um, that's great. What else do I need to do? (laughs) And there was a long pause And Dallas said, that is all. Reflecting years later, John Ortberg wrote a book called The Life You've Always Wanted. And he said, hurry is not just a disordered schedule. Hurry is a disordered heart. Matthew chapter 11, it says this. I'm going to do a couple more minutes. You guys okay on time? I don't even care. If you need to hurry off, go ahead. You'll condemn yourself. (laughs) I got you. Okay, real quick, as you hurry off. No, um, I was putting my my six-year-old to bed last night. (laughs) This is so ridiculous. Alex, I didn't even tell you this. He starts, he's laying in bed right when I kiss him. He starts doing this. I'm like, Amos, what are you doing? I'm pretending to stroke my beard, is what he said. I'm like, like, what are you doing? That's that's a freebie. That's just me being distracted. Okay, Matthew chapter 11. It was so good. I'm like, what are you doing? Oh, Jesus says, oh, that's for somebody here. Somebody needed a laugh right now. Come to me. All you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Eugene Peterson paraphrases it this way in the Message Bible or translation. He says, are you tired and worn out, burned out on religion? Yes and amen. Come to me. Get away with me and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn from, learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. How many of you want this? Now, for tired and weary people, yoke is a strange word. Would you agree? So yoke in the rabbinic tradition is the language, the description for a rabbi's teaching. So Jesus is saying, take my teaching, take my way of life, take the way I interpret the Torah and the kingdom of God and my life message and practice it. Put it on you, live in it. Okay, that's what he's saying when he says yoke. But I love what Frederick Del Bruner, the great New Testament scholar says in his translation of, uh, in Matthew's, Uh, commentary. He says, a yoke is a work instrument. Thus, when Jesus offers a yoke, he offers what we might think tired workers need least. They need a mattress or a vacation, not a yoke. But Jesus realizes that the most uh, restful gift he can give the tired is a new way to carry life, a fresh way to bear responsibilities. Realism sees that life is a succession of burdens. We cannot get away from them. Thus, instead of offering escape, Jesus offers equipment. Jesus means that obedience to the Sermon on the Mount, his yoke, will develop us in a balance and a way of caring life that will give more rest than the way we have been living. It's a strategy for life. 
adopting Jesus' lifestyle in the power of the Holy Spirit empowers a life he promises in the scripture. And the church is, we're doing it the wrong way. I'm doing it the wrong way. So what is the strategy for patience? I've already mentioned it. One, it's to recognize the fact that culture is pushing you towards hurry. You live with a default setting of do more as much as possible. Everyone's doing it, so you should do it. All the other families that are doing it, you should join them. Just go at the pace of culture, not recognizing that that pace will deform yourself. It will form you into the image of the world, deform you into the image of the world. And God wants to form you into his image. The strategy for patient is, if I could summarize it, it's very simple. It's just to slow down to be present. We have to slow down our pace. That might not seem very smart. And you're like, yeah, we need a teacher for this one. Um, but we need to slow down our pace of life. So here's some practical things. I want to just give you a ton of practical things that you can choose to adopt in your life, okay? These are things that I've done throughout my life as I've faced this. Obviously, obviously I need to do it more. Um, but let me give you some ideas, okay? How do we slow down to be present, to practice the strategy of patience? This is the practice. You ready? Number one, acknowledge you have a problem. Hi, I'm Darren. I have an impatience problem. One day sober. Not even today, actually. We'll start tomorrow. We have to acknowledge that we live in a moment where we are hurried and we are dealing with this issue. Number two, you have to choose intentionally to match your overall pace of life to the pace of life of Jesus. Jesus was never in a hurry. This really frustrates me because he was the son of, he is the son of God. He had a three-year life of ministry plan where he had three years to do what he came to do and then hand it off to his disciples. 33 years, right? So three years of public ministry. And in that time, he wastes a lot of time. He only had 120 followers after three years. I mean, come on, we can beat that, son of God. Unless he was doing it in a way that actually brought about transformation that we should learn from. Like this discipling is the strategy for changing the cosmos. Also though, like there was a lot of needs in his life. Would you agree? Like the urgent need of the moment, like he's doing something and this guy named Jairus interrupts him and says, my daughter's dying. He's not like, okay, let's go right now. I'm gonna drop her. He's like, cool, show me your daughter. He starts going. And then in the process of trying to get to Jairus' daughter, someone interrupts him. So he's already interrupted by Jairus and then he gets interrupted by the interruption. There's an interruption to the interruption. And a woman touches him, gets healed after 12 years of bleeding. He's like, talk, her, daughter, you're free, you know. And, and then he continues on. And by this time, the interruption turns to worst case scenario. Jairus' daughter's dead. But he says, no, she's not dead. Raises her from the dead. He was not in a hurry. One thing that you've seen, like, for example, his best friend, one of his best friends is Lazarus. And Lazarus doesn't get healed of sickness. Jesus is so slow, he waits two days and then goes to his sick friend. But he died. He's like, it's not a healing now. It's a raise from the dead moment. He, ha- he was, God was moving at a different pace. Most of us would be like, we gotta go, we gotta go. Come on, let's go, Jesus. And he's like, I got this. Jesus was never in a hurry. I love what Bill says, Pastor Bill says, and you should write this down. There's always enough time in the day for the things God is asking of you. There will never be enough time in the day for what God is not asking of you. Told you to write it down. You missed your opportunity. <laughs> Number three, so, so what do we do to, to match the pace? We do the discipline of slowing. It's a discipline in the church. It means you make every opportunity to go as slow as possible. Oh. Choose to go the speed limit. Choose the longest line on purpose. I know you're calculating efficiency in here. You're like, this one, there's an old lady over here with coupons, and this one has three people. I'm going to do that because I know it's going to go fast, and this is slow down on purpose. There's a lot, a lot of other things. Just Google that. It's discipline of slowing. Number three is realign your values to the values of the kingdom. Like, so those values primarily have to do with time and money, so just throw those up. Take a picture for the sake of time. This is how you reevaluate your time and money. 
Last, uh, number four is create a digital desert. If we're living in a constant barrage of information and entertainment and media, uh, choose to make a digital desert in your life. That word eremos that we talked about, like that secret solitary place, that lonely place, choose to live in a digital desert. Some of you are so addicted to your phones that the idea of, of not being distracted is literally uh, an addiction problem. Choose to get off your phone for a bit. Unsubscribe. Limit your screen time. Get off social media for an extended season. I was talking to pastors and they're like, oh my gosh, I can't imagine being off social media for 30 days. I'm like, try it for a year. See what it does to you. Number five, build a secret place with God. And lastly, and just to end, um, is to embrace reality as a training ground for patience. I already talked about this. But choose to embrace the obstacles to your desire to your timeline as the CrossFit of training in Christ-likeness for patience. The baby, the roommate who's always late, what if you stop criticizing and you just empower them to be who they are? Stop judging them secretly. Husbands whose wives take forever to get out the door, don't teach your children to hurry into the car. Create space for them. I'm just speaking to myself. This is me convincing myself. There's so many ways you can embrace reality. And then lastly, surrender the outcome. Just give up the outcome. How's that? All right, we're going to pray. So can we all stand? And then actually, let's read. The, I'm going to read the scripture over you as we step into response. There's this beautiful passage in scripture that I always try to um, theologically debate because you know, it's only in one of the gospels. So Luke chapter 10, there's this great moment and it says, it says Jesus and his disciples were on their way. He came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home. She had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She came to him and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me. Martha, Martha. The Lord answered, you are worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed or indeed only one. Mary has chosen what is better and it will not be taken away from her. Thanks for joining us. I hope you enjoyed this podcast. For more information, go to Garden.Church. God bless you.